G'day, I'm Non-Tenant, and you are listening to It's Good to Be a Man, the podcast where we are extending God's house and father rule by helping men to establish their own houses in strength, workmanship, and wisdom. Today, I am going to be making the case to you that a woman bearing the sword is an abomination to the Lord. Has a certain poetry to it, doesn't it? That's next. Being raised on a diet of superheroes, Power Rangers, Starfleet officers, and my shameful confession, Planeteers, this conclusion did not come naturally to me. Thanks to cultural conditioning, drawing on generations of feminism, my intuitions about women's roles were way off what scripture and nature say they should have been. And because of my affinity with certain geek subcultures, I had strong effective reasons to turn a blind eye on the matter. Who wants to be the guy that says Wonder Woman and Buffy and Peggy Carter and Supergirl are detestable to God? Well, maybe Supergirl. I liked many of these shows and these movies and these characters. I didn't want to give them up. And I'm not the only one. All of the conservative complementarian Christians that I know in real life see nothing wrong with kick-ass, badass, whatever other kinds of ask female characters there are in popular media right now. And when even small-town frozen chosen Baptists think that you're an extreme fundamentalist nutjob when it comes to gender roles, you have to think carefully about what you're doing. And yet, nonetheless, I appear to be destined to be an extreme fundamentalist nutjob, hopefully along with the rest of you guys, because the evidence of both nature and scripture looks pretty clear if you care to examine it. Women should not assume roles in society which involve upholding justice through force. And two paradigm cases of this would be soldiers and cops, but this prohibition extends to superheroes and slayers too. So let's canvas the broad strokes of the evidence for this. And it comes in two basic kinds, as usually is the case when we look at gender roles, the evidence of nature and the evidence of scripture, general revelation and special revelation. Let's look at the evidence of nature first. Now, we have to be careful with natural theology, because our intuitions are easily affected by cultural or personal factors, but it remains, even so, that God expects us to recognize certain facts of creation as obvious. You can see this in Romans 1.18 and onwards. And this is because he has built into us at least two intuitions which can be straightforwardly applied to mankind itself. The first of these is that design follows teleology. Put more simply, form follows function. I'd hope this is an uncontroversial principle for Christians. I'd hope that we'd all agree men are designed for protecting and providing and women for nurturing and caring. And we infer this not because the Bible explicitly says so, and to the best of my knowledge it doesn't, not in as many words, but because God made us to intuit our functions from our forms. And the reason the Bible isn't explicit on this point is precisely because it's presupposed as innate knowledge. It's just obvious. Why would you need to say it? And it isn't terribly difficult to see how this works with regard to men and women's roles. We've talked a lot about this in the past, the way the physical images the spiritual. You just have to be willing to notice it in a culture that is determined to turn the other way. The fact that, generally speaking, God created men with strong muscles, with agonistic instincts, while he created women with weaker muscles and conciliatory instincts, it's not incidental, it's not a curiosity, it's also not a hurdle for women to overcome in their struggle for equality. The fact that men respond to sudden stress with anger and aggression, while women respond with fear and flight, it's not an odd quirk to be corrected. It's a central reason to believe that men were created for combative roles, and women were not. 
God created Adam to exercise dominion by going out and subduing the world piece by piece. And Adam needed a helper, not because he required backup in this agonistic task, but because the task itself was pointless if there was no one to then stay in each subdued area to fill it up and make it a home. There's a reason that men are not generally attracted to forceful, aggressive women, and why women are not attractive to different, delicate men. Despite every effort of feminism, it's very hard to override our created natures to think of commanding women as capable rather than bossy, or of compliant men as respectful rather than feeble, because we instinctively know that what is virtuous in one sex is gross in the other. A manly woman has not added extra virtues to her femininity. She's destroyed her femininity by becoming butch. An effeminate man has not layered feminine virtues on top of his masculinity. He's defiled it by joining the ranks of the Malakoi, as 1 Corinthians 6.9 says in the Greek. This brings us to the second creation principle, which is that it's wrong to make a thing serve the opposite of its natural function. This principle flows from the first... And the Bible takes it for granted in many places. Uh, I'm not going to justify it here because I think it's obvious. Everyone can see that it's not right to make a thing serve the opposite of the function God created it for. So suffice to say that the defining function of a woman is to give life. This is obvious from her design. But you can also look at Genesis 3.20, 1 Timothy 2.15. Her special place as homemaker, Proverbs 31 and 1 Timothy 5.14-15, is a natural extension of this. And that's why God cursed Eve's childbearing, just as he cursed Adam's defining functions, managing the earth and providing for his family. This being so, women carrying the sword, as a matter of general principle, inverts their natural function. Even if they did have the disposition and physique for it, their very nature is to create and nurture life, not to threaten and end it. So for this reason also, it's a detestable thing for a woman to bear the sword. And I should note here, I take this as obvious, but maybe it's not. When I speak of carrying or bearing the sword, I'm alluding to Romans 13.4, which speaks of God's servant, civil magistrate, being God's servant for what is good. And if you do what is bad, be afraid, because he does not bear the sword to no purpose. He is God's servant, the one who avenges for punishment on the one who does what is bad. I'm not talking about literally carrying a sword in your hand. This brings us to the second kind of evidence, which is the evidence of scripture. We should obviously expect nature and scripture to teach the same things because they're made by the same God, and indeed they do. Although there are many passages that we could examine and synthesize, one in particular is instructive for serving as a clear instance of the general principle of women bearing the sword, and this is Deuteronomy 22.5, which says, A woman shall not wear men's clothing, Neither shall a man put on women's clothing, for whoever does these things is an abomination to Yahweh your God. Now, although translations typically say, as this one did, that a woman should not wear a man's clothing, nor a man the clothing of a woman, the vocabulary is actually more specific in the first half of the verse in the Hebrew. The second part, speaking of how men are not to wear the garments of women, does indeed use the standard term silmat for clothes and isha for women. But the first part, speaking of what manly things women are not to wear, does not use silmat, neither is man ish. Rather, the terms keli and geber are used. This lack of symmetry is conspicuous, considering the Hebrew tendency to rhyme ideas. What is the difference of terminology intended to convey? Well, let's look at geber first. It appears only here in Deuteronomy. Out of the hundreds of times that men are talked about, this is the only time that geber is used in Deuteronomy. 
It derives from the Hebrew gabar, meaning strong or mighty. Um, you see this in the term giborim, mighty ones, in Genesis 6-4 and Exodus 12, 34, uh, 37, and so on. Now, geber can indeed refer just to a man, as Ish does, but it carries a specific connotation of man as strong, distinguished from women, children, and non-combatants whom he is to defend. That's from Brown Driver Briggs. Now, given its completely unique usage here, we should certainly expect that this specific connotation is intentional. The second word is keili, which is uh, coupled with geber, and the fact that its connotation, the connotation of geber is important, is confirmed by the coupling with keili rather than silmat. Keili refers not to clothes, but to articles or to equipment. Uh, So in Isaiah 54, 16, for example, keili is a general term whose meaning is typically inferred from the context. So, for instance, in the context of picking fruit, it refers to a basket or a bag, something you would put the fruit in, in Deuteronomy 23-24. While in the context of embarking to battle, it refers to combat gear, Deuteronomy 141. Now, coupling Kaylee with Geber therefore makes Deuteronomy 22-5 much more specific than mere garments. And some translations recognize this. The KJV walks a decent neutral road by saying that uh, that which pertaineth unto a man, which at least makes clear that these are specific things a man wears that a woman should not. The ISV renders it similarly, what is appropriate to a man. Other translations like the LEB take a stab with apparel of a man, but this is rather too weak. To translate Kaylee Geber accurately, we should keep the generic nature of the words intact, the fact that the general can refer to a lot of things, but we should also recognize the contextual cues when we're selecting the best English rendering. What the passage is saying in, in reality is that it's detestable for women to don the gear of men. Well, what would that refer to contextually? Obviously things like armor, helmets, swords, bucklers. And when women's apparel is rhymed conceptually with men's, the difference in word choice is natural because men's apparel in a nation about to take the promised land by force included plenty of elements that women's did not. It's interesting that older exegetes heed the significance of the vocabulary used here, Gill, for example, and rabbinical exegetes as well. And many academic sources also note the lack of the parallel vocabulary, and they speak to its import. Here's an example from Warfare, Ritual, and Symbol in Biblical and Modern Contexts, which observes interpreting Kaylee Geber as battle gear rather than man's apparel in RSV was proposed by Cyrus H. Gordon, and finds precedent in the Talmud. The Talmud is uh, rabbinical writings. See B. Grossfield's translation, a woman should not wear a man's armament. Although many less technical commentators, along with translators, gloss over the distinction between Geber and Ish and Kali and Silmat, Kali is never used of clothes in the Old Testament, and Geber is unique in Deuteronomy, and words mean things, and their connotations mean things, and the choices Moses made about which of them to use mean things. The application for today is surely straightforward, inasmuch as the same fundamental gear is still used for the same fundamental purposes, it is offensive, detestable, abominable to God that women should aspire to don it. The apparel itself is not what concerns God, rather the transgression of gender roles. Men are not to behave as women, women are not to behave as men. As the CEV puts it, women must not pretend to be men, and men must not pretend to be women. The Lord your God is disgusted with people who do that. Now, while popular culture shrieks in outrage at the very notion of a man's job, 
God is outraged at the very notion of a woman doing a man's job. Women donning fatigues, helmets, sidearms, or riot shields is disgusting to the Lord. In fact, it is often disgusting even to acculturated men when it happens in real life, because without the gloss of a sexy actress dressed up in clothing designed to augment her attractiveness rather than her combat ability, and whose physical incapability for the task is hidden by stunt work, it's simply ugly. For those who are inured or want to deny that ugliness reflects anything deeper, or are triggered by my mere use of that term, the only plausible option for disagreeing with the Bible on this point looks to be cultural relativism. That was then, and this is now. Roles change depending on society. It's progress, baby. But this obviously begs the question against the principles of natural function that I've already talked about, while also having no hermeneutical principle to justify it. A feminist might be cool with that. And, in fact, we know many who are. But no Bible-believing Christian should be willing to dismiss this instance of gender roles as culturally conditioned, while simultaneously insisting that other gender roles in the family, in the church, are not. What is the principle on which we can say that the role of carrying the sword was culturally relative, but the role of ruling a family or assembly was not? It's so obviously ad hoc, especially when we realize that the sword is the key instrument of rulership in the civil domain. So Deuteronomy 22.5 is a useful case that proves the broad principles of men and women's roles. There are created distinctions between us. We are meant for different things, exemplified in different virtues. Masculine virtues are exemplified in things like being alert and courageous to engage in conflict and exercise strength against opposition, which is why we have passages like 1 Corinthians 16.13 and 1 Samuel 4.9. Feminine virtues are exemplified in deference, gentleness, quietness, which is why we have passages like 1 Peter 3.3-4. And as Peter immediately goes on to illustrate in that passage, men and women are therefore subject to different vices also. Men are subject to being overbearing and contemptuous in verse 7, and women to being vain and fearful in verses 3 and 6. And elsewhere, other tendencies are also addressed. For instance, men must resist being too hard on their children in Ephesians 6.4 and Colossians 3.21. Women must resist idle socialization lest they become gossips and busybodies in 1 Timothy 5.13. The virtues and vices that we are inclined to are different because they reflect the functions that we are made for, which are different. By way of closing, one final thought. If a man's function is directed toward protecting women and exercising authority, then a woman carrying the sword is not merely detestable because she is violating her intended purpose. It is detestable because it cannot happen except by a man first violating his intended purpose. This is what we mean when we keep hammering the patriarchy is built into creation drum. Patriarchy is built into creation. To carry the sword is by nature to put oneself in harm's way, so it's not just a woman who is in sin when she does this by rebelling against her created design, it is men also by failing to prevent women putting themselves into the kind of danger that men were designed for. I'm not saying that men are cowards and are making women go out and do it. I'm saying... And at some point, somewhere along the line, a man had to say, okay, you can do that. And if you think that that makes us blue pill or that we're somehow betraying the brotherhood by saying that, you are insane. You don't believe in patriarchy. Western culture is subject to double condemnation because patriarchy is built into creation and we have allowed women to do this kind of thing. How shall we escape this condemnation? Well, the evangelical way of preaching the gospel has not succeeded here. 
it's adopted feminism enthusiastically. To restore God's design for the sexes in the world, I think we must first restore God's design for preaching his gospel as a message of the triumph of his chosen king over the world. We must start treating the Great Commission as a directive to conquer. When we do that, when we preach that manly gospel, the gospel of God's father rule through Jesus, then we will start to see some progress. That's all for this time. Until next time, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men and be strong, and let everything that you do be done in love. Mm